How about we're buying oil from Venezuela? When I left, Venezuela was ready to collapse. We would have taken it over. We would have gotten all that oil. It would have been right next door. But now we're buying oil from Venezuela, so we're making a dictator very rich. Can you believe this? Nobody can believe it. It was never about democracy. It was never about human rights. It was always about imperialism and the neocolonial drive for the control of Venezuela's resources. If Trump rubs the foreign policy establishment the wrong way, it isn't because he somehow represents a break with the logic of empire. It's because he has a tendency to say the quiet part out loud. At the end of May, Brazilian President Lula da Silva hosted Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro for a bilateral meeting ahead of a regional summit in Brasilia. During their press conference, Lula said what anyone who actually follows Venezuela already knew. This idea that the country under Maduro is not a democracy, that the people live under an authoritarian nightmare and are enduring a human rights catastrophe, is a narrative, one crafted and amplified to justify imperialist attacks. It should come as no surprise that Lula received strong pushback for his comments. Political leaders such as Uruguay's Luis Lacalle and Chile's Gabriel Boric, along with pro-imperialist Human Rights Watch, criticized the Brazilian leader for daring to go against the narrative about Venezuela. Then along comes Trump to prove that Lula was right all along. The U.S.-led sanctions campaign, the blockade of the oil industry, the effort to isolate Maduro internationally. It wasn't about restoring democracy. It was about turning the screws on the population. They wanted the country, as Trump said, to collapse in order to, quote, get all that oil. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftists and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're looking at the state of Venezuela's assets abroad. We open the program with Trump's recent comments about the country. Trump is a buffoon, of course and woefully wrong about U.S. policy towards Venezuela today. As we've explored previously on this program, under President Joe Biden, U.S. policy has largely gone unchanged. The maximum pressure strategy first implemented by Trump has continued under Biden. Putting aside the absurd notion that Venezuelan oil sales are somehow lining Maduro's pockets, if that supply was interrupted, it is because of the U.S. blockade on Venezuela's oil industry. In fact, during Chavez's years as president and before the imposition of sanctions on the oil industry, the supply of oil from Venezuela to the U.S. was never in question. What the U.S. couldn't tolerate was that the rent from oil was spent on the people, that it was used to finance an alternative development model, one that tried to break free of U.S. domination. U.S. leaders on both sides of the aisle cannot stand the fact that their puppets aren't in charge in Venezuela. We can say with confidence that the era of the isolation of Venezuela and the democratically elected government of Nicolás Maduro is over. Country after country has abandoned the farce of the so-called interim government. That is, of course, with the exception of the imperialist countries, like the U.S., who are unwilling to admit their defeat. Instead, they double down, refusing to lift their illegal sanctions 
in delivering another $347 million worth of stolen Venezuelan funds to the long-defunct opposition-controlled National Assembly. The Trump-Biden maximum pressure strategy is about empire. Venezuela is being punished for daring to propose a counter-hegemonic vision. One of the ways the country is being punished is through the theft of the country's foreign assets. Presently, there is $2 billion worth of Venezuelan gold held in the Bank of England out of reach for the Maduro government, frozen because Downing Street still wants to pretend that Maduro is not the president. To talk about the status of Venezuela's gold in the UK and the efforts by the UK political establishment to deny government access to it, we will speak with investigative journalist John McAvoy. But first, a conversation with Venezuela analysis Ricardo Vaz on U.S. efforts to keep the so-called interim government alive, its role as an instrument to facilitate the plunder of Venezuela's assets and resources, and the precarious situation of Venezuela's $10 billion worth U.S.-based oil subsidiary, Citgo. Hi, Ricardo. As always, it's great to have you back on the program here to share your insights with us. We're talking about Venezuelan assets. So I wanted to ask, obviously, about Juan Guaido. So when Juan Guaido declared himself interim president in 2019, the expectation of his foreign backers, namely the United States, among others, was that the Venezuelan armed forces would quickly defect and join his unconstitutional coup. But I think Guaido and the hardline opposition in Venezuela, as usual, underestimated their rivals. I think they underestimated the loyalty of the armed forces, and they underestimated the Venezuelan working class. Now, as our listeners know, the coup plot failed. And even his own allies, as of today, have withdrawn his fake status as the so-called interim president. Yet every time you think that the charade is over, he somehow pops back up into the spotlight. You know, after first cutting off the opposition's access to the money, something that I think for me is akin to a parent disciplining a misbehaved child, we saw that after Guaido arrived in the United States in early May, the State Department once again loosened the purse strings and gave the defunct 2015 National Assembly, led by Dino Figuera, access to $347 million in Venezuelan frozen funds. Now, I've taken to calling Guaido's circus a zombie government because it just refuses to die. Surely, even U.S. policymakers have come around to the fact that Maduro is not going anywhere. So why do they keep resurrecting this long-expired, opposition-controlled National Assembly, which doesn't have any legitimacy anymore? Hi, Jose Luis. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, I should apologize to the listeners. I have a bit of a flu going on, so I, I might sound a bit funky. So just, just a small detail to add to what you were saying in the beginning. You, you are absolutely correct that you know, there was this expectation that the coup was going to succeed. I mean, we're not speculating. This was really what U.S. officials said, that it was going to succeed in a window of weeks, months at most. But when we talk about underestimating the loyalty and the Bolivarian character of the Venezuelan armed forces, as well as the, the resistance and the kind of anti-imperialist instincts of the Venezuelan people, this miscalculation or uh, underestimation was also from U.S. policymakers. I don't know if they uh, were too happy to believe in, in the likes of Guaido, who promised them uh, an early victory. But it was very clearly uh, a miscalculation from them. And I actually, I really like the, the expression zombie government. I mean, this thing, which is far from serious, has been around for so long. And we've come, we've come up with so, so many names in time. 
one of the defining moments for me, and I know I've, I've harped on this joke quite a lot, the defining moment for me of the Guaido uh, quote-unquote interim presidency is this press conference where there's a, a Venezuelan, a shield of the Venezuelan Republic that's made of cardboard and it falls behind him as in, in, in this kind of uh, pretend uh, press set that he had. So you kind of went from a cardboard presidency to a zombie government, uh, as, you were saying, as you were saying. This National Assembly, uh, I'm sure readers who follow Venezuelan analysis will be quite aware. This National Assembly, its term ran out uh, in January 2021. So it is already over two years past, past its expiration date. And when we think about uh, a parliament, I mean, this was elected, the, the, these deputies were elected by popular vote in 2015 to a five-year term. It's not within their prerogative to just unilaterally extend their own term. So that's where kind of being backed by the U.S. empire seems to change the rules. And when we wonder why is this uh, defunct National Assembly still around, I mean, I think we have 347 million reasons. Actually, just before, uh, a few hours ago, I, I went to look at what this uh, you know, expired National Assembly is up to because when Guaido was in charge, they took the charade very seriously. So they would hold these uh, parliamentary sessions, you know, uh, quote unquote again, uh, via Zoom and they would have an agenda and all that. But ever since the, this National Assembly dissolved the interim government, appointed uh, Dinora Figueres, as you, have as you were mentioning, as the new president, it seems that they, are, they no longer really care about <laughs> keeping up appearances. So they don't even meet. The last meeting, which was just a meeting of uh, a commission, was over a month ago. And they, they, they don't really care. I mean, they're, they're just there to, to fulfill a role. So when we talk about this 347 million, these are Venezuelan assets that the, the U.S. seized. And so having this zombie government, which we could also refer to as a kind of placeholder, it's something that the U.S., uh, I, as you were saying, you know, U.S. policymakers surely know that this is not going to be successful, but it doesn't mean that it's no longer useful. So uh, these 347 million follow uh, lots, uh, <laughs> hundreds of millions before, and these have been mechanisms for the United States to transfer resources to the Venezuelan opposition. Only that they are not even U.S. taxpayer money, they are Venezuela's own money that's being transferred to the opposition. And it's no mystery why, why that happens. Uh, right now, the opposition is, is having a primary uh, elections in, in October, and then there's a presidential race uh, next year. We don't know the date yet. It should be towards the end of the year. So I firmly expect that this National Assembly is going to remain in place because this will be the mechanism to fund to the tune of you know hundreds of millions of dollars an electoral campaign to see if they can finally defeat Chavismo at the polls, which is something that they haven't uh, really succeeded so far. So this is kind of the, let's say, more immediate short-term reason why this placeholder zombie government remains. And the other is that uh, you, you mentioned in the beginning that Guaido declared himself interim president in January 2019, and he was recognized by the U.S., and then all the usual suspects fell in line. Uh, John McAvoy is going to tell us about what that meant in the U.K., for Venezuela's gold reserve store there. But in other cases, it just meant that uh, Venezuela's assets abroad 
who were transferred to the hands of this uh, interim government with all the consequences that it had. And so this uh, kind of alternative uh, recognized entity remains in place to control the fate of these assets. On the topic of Venezuelan foreign assets, in the second half of the program, we're going to look into the case of Venezuela's gold in the UK, which I think a lot of people are probably somewhat familiar with. But that's only one piece of a much larger picture. You know, right now, I'd like to focus on Venezuela's US-based oil subsidiary, Citgo, which is considered the country's most valuable foreign asset, worth somewhere between $9 and $15 billion. Our colleague at Venezuela Analysis, Andreina, recently wrote that, quote, there's almost zero chance of the Venezuelan people ever getting them back, end quote, referring to Venezuela's foreign assets, Citgo included. So what happened with Citgo? And is Andreina right? Are they never going to get it back? Sadly, I think uh, Andreina might be right. I mean, we have covered Citgo quite extensively. I would invite readers to look at our coverage. We also have a, a neat infographic that details the, the very steps that took us to, to this point. So just to summarize, this is a very long and kind of technical field with uh, legal intricacies. But the, the key thing is that Citgo is being threatened by creditors. So on one hand, there's a, a, a bond, the, the PDVSA 2020 bond, which uh, defaulted uh, Venezuela because of sanctions, could not continue to service this bond, even though it was uh, a heavy priority for the Maduro government. And 50.1% uh, of the shares of uh, PDV Holding, which is the holding company of Citgo, were pledged as collateral. So these bondholders uh, can seize them as compensation. They haven't done it so far because of an order by the US Treasury Department blocking any transactions with this specific bond. This, this order was put in place, kind of uh, spared the blushes of the, of the quote-unquote interim government, you know, to make sure that Citgo was not lost uh, on their watch. And this was usually renewed for a year, but uh, after the, the Guaido experiment came to its tragic end in January, it has only been renewed for a three-month period. And the writing is kind of on the wall that at some point the, protect, the protection is going to be lifted altogether. But this is just uh, one part of the story. The other, which is much bigger, has to do with the number of corporations that won uh, international arbitration awards against Venezuela. So as we recall, Chavez had a very clear uh, sovereign perspective uh, for what Venezuela's economy should be, and, and specifically the oil sector. And so the rules changed in a way that it wasn't such a paradise for foreign corporations anymore. So some of them actually adapted and stayed. I mean, we have the case of, of Chevron, which is still around. And others refused to play by the rules and, and, and try to you know, uh, create some tension. And in the end, the Venezuelan government uh, nationalized those assets. So then these corporations went to these uh, international tribunals, in, in most of them, to the, to the ICSID, which is the tribunal under the purview of the World Bank. And these tribunals always, you know, believe it or not, rule in favor of corporations. So there are a number of awards owed to, to, these, to these corporations. And Venezuela in the past has tried to, to reach settlements uh, with them and, and agree to kind of favorable payment uh, schedules to kind of solve, solve these issues. And, and one of them 
to, to get us to the present was Crystalac. Crystalac is a is a Canadian miner which is no longer no longer around. It's defunct, but it's it sued Venezuela for the expropriation of a mine. It was awarded something like two billion dollars, including interest. And Venezuela reached a settlement uh, with the, with the, with the company, and it was making some kind of four hundred million payments. And then because of sanctions, it couldn't uh, physically <laughs> make the payment. And so so Crystalex went to this kind of judicial route and. We, we shouldn't assume that the justice system in the U.S. is impartial. So this really became another avenue to attack Venezuela. And so there was the, a judge in, in Delaware that granted Crystal X the right to seize Citgo shares as compensation. This is not trivial. You, you actually were the one who wrote about this most recently. There's the so-called alter ego argument because these, these debts, these, these awards are owed by the Venezuelan state. And so it's not immediate for the, the creditor to claim uh, shares of some state company as compensation. You have to prove that they are one and the same. And so Crystal X was a- able to prove that through the expertise, uh, you know, in a very loose sense, of a character who has, a, who has played a very dark role in all of this, and that's uh, Jose Ignacio Hernandez. So he was kind of an expert witness to prove that... Uh, uh, Venezuela and PDVSA were the same, and, and thus Crystal X could seize Citgo uh, shares as compensation. And then Jose Ignacio Hernandez went to work for the, the Guaido administration. And so to me, this screams conflict of interest. And it's even more surprising that having worked for Crystal X, Crystal X was not bothered at all that he went to the other side. And so when we talk about why Citgo is, is in danger, it's a, it's a combination of, of things. So on one hand, you have the, the, the justice system, you know, both the U.S. justice system and these kind of international tribunals that have a, a very clear bias in favor of corporations. On the other, you have sanctions which stop Venezuela from being able to, to deal with these issues in the most favorable conditions, call it like that. And then you have the actions of the opposition, which in some cases we can classify them as uh, incompetence, but I think there are also very clear signs of collusion and conflicts of interest. I was talking about uh, Jose Ignacio Hernandez. Another, another case, perhaps the most outrageous of all, there's an award owed to ConocoPhillips. And this is something like $8.5 And with interest, it's already over $10 billion. And this is still under appeal in this uh, World Bank court. But while that, that was ongoing, ConocoPhillips went to a, to, a, to a court, I think in Washington, D.C., uh, asking for permission to enforce the award. And after more than a year, uh, Guaido's lawyers, and, and remember, Guaido, even though he, d- he didn't have any real power, he had these uh, budgets of tens of, of millions of dollars. And Guaido's lawyers simply didn't show up in court. And ConocoPhillips won this ruling by default. So now it's also looking to to enforce this award. And to make matters even murkier, one of the chief uh, attorneys for ConocoPhillips is uh, Alberto Ravel, who is none other than the son of Juan Guaido's press chief. Of course, this is just the circumstantial evidence, and uh, there's no proof that there are conflicts of interest, but there are certainly very clear signs that they are at least should, should be investigated and that the role of the opposition has not been at all to safeguard and uh, protect Venezuelan assets, but rather to ensure 
they're, they're plundering, you know, to use, to use your own, your own expression. So to go back to what Andreino was saying, you know, if, if uh, what Andreino wrote, sorry, if, the, if Sitko's uh, fate is sealed or not, I think at this point it is because there are so many creators uh, whose claims, if you add them up, surpass the valuation of, of Sitko that it's very hard to see how it can remain more or less uh, intact, you know, especially if this kind of uh, ugly signs of conflicts of interest and, and collusion are not going to be challenged uh, judicially, it becomes even more complicated. So now you have a board at, at CITCO that was appointed by this expired National Assembly. So who does this board actually answer to? You know, because it's not automatic that they will have the best interests of CITCO uh, in mind. And, and also what they think are the best interests are not necessarily what uh, PDVSA thinks are the best interests or what the best interests are for the Venezuelan country. For the, for uh, for Venezuela for for the country, so now this this board says that it's going to negotiate uh, individually with with creditors, but uh, it doesn't have uh, at least a moral authority to do so. It's just going to find some corporate arrangement that's good for everyone except for for Venezuela, and it, it's going to be terrible not just because of the the thirteen billion that Citgo is worth, but also because of what it's worth to the Venezuelan oil sector. So here we had a number of refineries very close to Venezuela, and they provided a perfect outlet for Venezuela's extra heavy crude. So when we talk about you know exporting crude to China, that's that's fine, but that's much further away. So it was actually much cheaper and much more favorable to to have like a secure destination for your oil, which then in turn would send back fuel, you know, kind of saving you the trouble of having to import fuel or having to struggle with the, with the refining system. So it's not really just losing the, the asset and, and what it's valued. It's a lot, of course, but it also has bigger implications for the Venezuelan oil sector and the economy. Yeah, I think the role of the opposition in the plunder of Venezuelan assets can't be overstated. It's clear, and I really appreciate the way you've outlined it for us. You know, I've argued elsewhere that after the so-called interim government failed on its primary objective, which was to affect regime change in Venezuela, to oust Maduro, it actually transformed into something else. It became an instrument to facilitate the plunder of Venezuelan assets and resources. But at the same time, I suspect that there are also geopolitical interests at play. Because at the end of the day, the supply of oil from Venezuela to the United States was never interrupted. It wasn't about exacting control over the resources at a certain given point. But then, obviously, imperialism took these steps to dramatically intervene in the affairs of Venezuela, which we've talked about at length. So I wonder, when it comes to these geopolitical motivations, is U.S. imperialism trying to punish Venezuelans in order to send a message? Absolutely. I think that's, a, that's an, an excellent way to, to read it. You know, you, you have a number of, of objectives that are, are not mutually exclusive, but then, you know, once the main goal of really replacing the government and installing a US-friendly administration, you know, once that is out of the window, what more can you do? I mean, thinking from the, from the, the US standpoint, what more can you do to hurt Venezuela the most in the short run and, and in the long run? So the, the, final, the final thing you said, you know, the, this idea of punishing Venezuela, Venezuelans for, you know, 
taking wrong choices and electing people like Chavez. The U.S. has been trying to do this since the very beginning. But this final uh, or this most recent stage of uh, imperialist aggression against Venezuela is perhaps the closest they've come to actually oust the Bolivarian process. And, you know, if you go back to what you were saying in the beginning, they didn't really come close at all. So it, it just shows how they continue to, to, to deal in this kind of uh, imperialist delusion. So when we talk about, about CITCO, uh, I think we have to see it as part of this wider sanctions program, you know, to try and hurt the Venezuelan economy, to try and hurt the Venezuelan oil sector as much as possible with long-term consequences. So here, there might be a case where at some point, uh, CITCO is returned to the Venezuelan government, but it's so riddled with, with debts and so compromised that it's actually worse for, for Venezuela. This, this is, these, are, these are the kinds of scenarios that, that we're talking about. So when we, when we consider something as strategic as, as oil, and especially given its importance in Venezuela, it is about trying to, I mean, you did not, you, I mean, being the US, did not succeed in ousting Maduro, but it's about uh, weakening and hurting Venezuela as much as possible in the long run, so that, for example, it will have to return to the global oil markets in much less favorable conditions, in much more vulnerable conditions. I mean, I, I mentioned Chevron a while ago. There was, uh, you know, the only step that the Biden administration took uh, with regards to this uh, quote-unquote maximum pressure sanctions program from the Trump administration, the only step they did to undo that was a very limited license for Chevron that, that uh, has been in place for some six months now. And this is a license that attempts at every turn to stop the Venezuelan government, or the Venezuelan state rather, from getting the revenues that it is actually due due to its majority stakeholding position in the ventures with, with Chevron. But because uh, Venezuela is in such a vulnerable position and in such dire need of income, it's kind of forced to accept these less, less favorable conditions. So uh, if the U.S. is not going to, to succeed in introducing a, a puppet government, even if it's not going to succeed in, in winning the, the elections next year, I mean, there's nothing to suggest that the opposition is going to get its act together, it's going to at least make sure that Venezuela will become as uh, weakened and as vulnerable and as dependent as possible to, you know, to use your own uh, analogy, to, to kind of give a lesson to, to the Venezuelan people. I think anybody who ever doubts that the U.S. today is an empire need only look at the way it tries to distort the situation, to manage the situation in Venezuela. It's clear as day for me. It's neocolonial plunder. It is the logic of empire. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. As always, it's been really good hearing your analysis, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I hope this was uh, insightful, and I hope everyone will, will enjoy it. Eu fiquei sabendo que a Venezuela tinha uma reserva de 31 toneladas de ouro em Londres e que essa reserva de ouro, ao invés de ser colocada sob a guarda do governo da Venezuela, foi colocada sob a guarda do Guaidó. In our next segment, we will speak with investigative journalist John McAvoy, who has extensively covered the issue of Venezuela's gold for the website Declassify UK. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. It's really great to have you here. My first question is this. The interim president is no more. 
dissolved by his own allies in the 2015 defunct National Assembly. But the biggest backers of the Waido Circus, the US and the UK, they seem unable to let it go. During his visit to Washington, we saw Waido convince policymakers to release another $347 million to the opposition. And then meanwhile, in the UK, the Maduro government, to this day, cannot access its gold reserves there. Help us answer this question that you posed in one of your pieces for Declassified UK. Why is Venezuela's gold still frozen in the Bank of England? Thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. So I'll try and just, just go through the, the kind of history of, of how you know, the situation that we're in today has come to be, how it is that you know, five, six months almost to the day, actually, um, after Juan Guaido uh, was forced to step down and his parallel government uh, was dissolved, um, how the, the gold in the Bank of England is still frozen. And as you say, the, the Venezuelan government is still not able to access it. Um, so this, this came to public light really around March 2020, when the Venezuelan government sued the Bank of England over its refusal to release the gold. Um, but the history actually goes back uh, a couple of years prior. So the Bank of England initially refused to release Venezuela's gold, um, which uh, were widely reported to be around worth around 1.2 billion. Um, but the reality was, in fact, that they were worth roughly $2 billion uh, worth. Um, so the, the initial refusal came after the 2018 election in Venezuela. Um, and the, the Bank of England initially refused to release the gold over apparent confusion over who over the legit legitimacy of the Maduro government. Um, as everyone will be aware, shortly after in January, on the 23rd of January 2019, uh, Juan Guaido uh, declared himself president uh, of Venezuela and uh, a number of countries, I mean, the, the US kind of rushed to recognise him. Uh, I believe it was the same day or the day after. Um, the British government uh, gave the, the Maduro government a week to declare uh, new free or fair elections, um, without which they would they would recognise Guaido, which they did on the fourth of February, and um, and this basically gave the Bank of England a much clearer uh, legal basis to justify the freezing of Venezuela's gold. Um, former Foreign Office Minister for 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 the Americas, Alan Duncan, kind of revealed in his diary that the Bank of England was actually quite. Um, concerned about the gold situation prior to the UK's recognition of Guaido, and um, they believe that they are on shaky ground, um, and that 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 their case for freezing Venezuela's gold might not hold up in a court of law. So Duncan provided the Bank of England prior to recognition with a robust Foreign Office letter outlining the UK government's position on Venezuela, and um, but really the recognition of Guaido served as the kind of core legal prerequisite. Um, for the freezing of the gold. Um, so then we get to March, I believe, March or May 2020, when uh, the, the Maduro government actually sues the Bank of England to release the gold. And this tra triggers this protracted legal battle, which, which is still ongoing today. Um, and the whole legal battle is basically centred on whether the UK government um, recognises uh, the Maduro government or recognises Guaido. Uh, and if they do recognise Guaido, whether that gives um, Guaido the power or Guaido's uh, representatives the power to represent and control the assets of the Central Bank of Venezuela, which are situated in London, i.e. in the Bank of England. Um, 
the the court the court hearing which have which have well the hearings which have passed through court the high court the court of appeal um, and also the supreme court have been i mean I, I don't have a legal background um but i've followed it uh as closely as perhaps anybody else and it it's centered on a, a, num- a number of different things and um, that it initially centered on on, on whether the uk really recognized uh, Guaido. Um, and and, it, and the court initially um, found that, that that yes, that the foreign secretary at the time, Jeremy Hunt's uh, statement of recognition of Guaido on the 4th of February 2019 acted as sufficient uh, recognition and therefore the, the executive and the judiciary must speak with one voice and therefore the UK recognises Guaido for all intents and purposes. Um, shortly after at the Court of Appeals, uh, well, this this decision was appealed, and at the Court of Appeals, the Maduro government actually won because the, the 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 judge in this case found that in fact the UK government's recognition of Guaido uh, was 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 ambiguous, um, given that there is a stated recognition of Guaido, but the Maduro government still exercised de facto power, um, and the UK government still maintained diplomatic relations with the Maduro government, so. Um, so, for example, the Maduro government had an ambassador in the UK that um, that the UK government had to coordinate with if, if the UK government ever wanted to, you know, have a, a diplomatic visit to Venezuela, for instance. Um, so, for for all intents and purposes, the UK government continued to recognise the Maduro government, um, but in 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 verbal terms, it recognised the Guaido uh, Guaido's parallel government. And um, so, so. The, the next phase of this, um, without getting too far into the legal mumbo-jumbo, was that that appeal was again overturned um, and it was once again found uh, that the UK government, in fact, did recognise uh, uh, Guaido and that the Foreign Secretary's written statement on recognition was sufficient evidence for the courts to treat, to, to, to assume that the UK government treats Guaido as president um, and then the, the the issue moved on to whether okay, so if the UK government does recognise Guaido as Venezuelan president, does Guaido therefore have um, the, the a, a sufficient legal basis to represent and control the central bank of Venezuela's assets in the UK, um, and can can um, the the UK courts recognise the decisions of Venezuela's Supreme Tribunal of Justice, its highest court? Which nullified the appointments of Guaido to the set to the Central Bank of Venezuela, what what is called his ad hoc board of the Central Bank of Venezuela. And um, this is a sticking point that the courts are still discussing. And there was a hearing just this week, um, where the Maduro board was basically trying to uh, appeal um, the UK courts' statement that that yes, um, yes, that the the, the Guaido uh, the Guaido board. Was able was able to to basically uh, uh, sorry that the the TSG was the TSJ was um, sorry the <laughs> the STJ was incapable um, of nullifying his appointments and um, since I mean there's been a number of um, absurdities and uh, I mean it's, it's been riven by farces this in, in entire process I mean there's two two examples um, to bring up the first of which is when the Maduro government actually won its appeal. Uh, the, the Guaido board was was requested to well forced to pay four hundred thousand pounds of court fees to Maduro board, but since uh, the Maduro board was actually under sanctions from the U.S. government, 
it wasn't possible, it wasn't legally possible for the Guaido board to pay the court dues. Um, and so the, the Guaido board risked being held in, and was actually held in contempt of court for its failure to pay dues to the court because of the, the, the sanctions under place against uh, the Maduro board. Um, the, the, other, the other absurdity is that the hearing that happened this week, because the case is still on, ongoing despite Guaido no, no longer being president, is that they've, they've turned up to court um, and the argument has moved so far away from the original um, legal dispute that the people representing Guaido's initial ad hoc board of the Central Bank of Venezuela are no longer even the same people because the Guaido, the Guaido government no longer exists. So the, the entire case um, has, has, has moved so, so much further than, 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 than how it originated and that it just it simply comes across as farcical. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if the Foreign Office at this point would happily just, just be done with it because, it's, because it is a real enduring embarrassment for the UK government. Yeah, and that actually brings me to my next question. The way you describe it, they've tried to sell us this idea that it's just a court case, that it's something for the Bank of England to resolve. But the truth is, it's, it's political. And one of the other pieces you worked on for Declassified UK talked about this. You know, not only has the Venezuelan gold case exposed how Venezuela's opposition has tried to seize Venezuelan state assets with looted Venezuelan state assets, but it turns out that the UK put tens of thousands of pounds towards Guaido's efforts to access this $2 billion worth of gold. And so your latest investigation found that the Foreign Office spent public funds, that is funds belonging to the people of the UK, to support Guaido's campaign. How did you get this information? How did you find out that it turns out there was funding from the British Foreign Office? And what does this tell us about the political nature of this case of the Venezuelan gold in the UK banks? Yeah, exactly. So, so since, um, since 2019, in fact, uh, the UK Foreign Office, as well as the UK Treasury, um, or officials representing both departments, have insisted uh, on a number of occasions that this isn't a political case, uh, that this is either a matter for the Bank of England uh, or a matter for the courts. Um, and this this is um, a kind of typically, uh, yeah, a kind of typically insincere argument on the, on the, on the part of the UK government. Um, because as, as I mentioned earlier, obviously this, this case would not actually need to exist um, if the UK government had not made the absurd decision to recognise Guaido in the first place. So a political decision um, actually triggered this uh, protracted legal battle in, in, in the first place. Um, but there are another of other layers of politicisation of this case as well. I mean, uh, as John Bolton laid out in his book, um, the Jeremy Hunt, uh, Jeremy Hunt visited um, uh, Washington shortly after Juan Guaido's self-proclamation in, in late January 2019. Uh, and Venezuela was high on the agenda. They discussed it together. Um, uh, well, documents I've, I've, I've received by the Freedom of Information Act show that uh, both Mike Pompeo, the then Secretary, Trump Secretary of State, and John, uh, John and John Bolton, the uh, National Security Advisor, both thanks Jeremy Hunt for his position uh, on Venezuela for going one step towards recognition of Guaido. Um, but the book also shows that Hunt was delighted to agree to freeze Venezuela's assets um, in London. So obviously, I mean, it, it, this clearly shows that 
you know, you cannot decontextualize the freezing of Venezuela's assets from the, the wider the wider political situation, whereby the US principally is trying to overthrow the government of Venezuela. But as you touched on, um, more more recently, I published an article demonstrating that the, the Foreign Office had had spent upwards of um, eighty thousand pounds on this case. Um, so the Foreign Office has, on numerous occasions during the the, the Bank of England gold um, legal dispute, been either called upon or or voluntarily provided information to the courts in order to promote or in order to support Juan Guaido's claim to the gold. Um, so at every turn throughout this this case, the Foreign Office has emphasised to the courts that it recognises Juan Guaido and not Nicolas Maduro as Venezuelan president. Um, and particularly with regards to the Supreme Court hearing, the Foreign Office acquired the legal services of some of the UK's top lawyers um, in order to um, basically describe the Foreign Secretary's position on recognition. Um, so, so the Foreign Office has basically used you know, uh, public money in order to emphasise uh, its case at the Supreme Court and at other hearings uh, in order to ju- uh, support Juan Guaido's claim to the gold. Um, obviously, this is a, a, a scandalous um, and ridiculous use of, of public funds. Um, and, and the UK government was, was not at all um, required to acquire the best legal service it could possibly find. Uh, and, and, and at no point has it been actually required to justify why those claims to the court, because at any time during this uh, entire process, the UK government could have stepped down from its ridiculous position, normalised relations with the Maduro government, and accepted that its recognition of Guaido in the first place uh, had, had, had no sound legal basis, uh, was an infringement of the sovereignty of the Venezuelan state. Um, and, and also, I mean, this is, this is going a step further than what you would expect of the British government, um, but except that the sanctions regime against Venezuela um, is causing harm to ordinary Venezuelans. But, but then again, I mean, this is not necessarily out of the question. There's a number of cases, past cases of British foreign policy in Latin America, um, which, which show that the British government actually did recognise that sanctions harm the civilian population uh, more than they actually uh, serve the foreign policy goals at the time. And, and one, of the, one of the key examples of this is during uh, the late 80s when the US government imposed really harsh sanctions on Panama to try and, to try and get rid of Nor- Noriega, uh, who, as, as you know, was on the CIA payroll for many years, but um, the US government by, by this time had turned on him. Um, and at this time, the, the British government opposed sanctions on Panama. They said that this is going to harm they rightfully said that this is going to harm the ordinary civilian population. Um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not going to help the US government succeed in its foreign policy uh, objectives of re- removing uh, Noriega. Um, and so they declined to do so. Um, similar, similarly, following the Cuban Revolution, uh, the British government refused to join uh, the, the, the wholesale embargo on Cuba because it recognised that this was an unjust act of economic warfare. Um, but in the case of Venezuela, this position has has eroded. Um, perhaps this is related to Britain's global decline more widely, um, that it no longer has the kind of ability to resist US pressure to join these kind of economic embargoes. But it's clear that in British thinking, they're capable of understanding that these kinds of embargoes and sanctions harm the civilian population 
and and don't have the supposed intended effect um of removing the government um so so yeah so so as to go back to the, to the very start that the, the freezing of venezuela's gold has to be understood within the wider context of the us backed effort to to remove the maduro government and um, this is political at, at at its core um it is influenced by the us government um and the foreign office's use of public funds uh, to support this claim uh, is scandalous yeah i want to close precisely with a conversation about the impact of Western policy towards Venezuela, about the impact of sanctions. And we know that the aim of the whole interim government charade was regime change. They wanted a change in Caracas. But when it became clear that their coup plot wasn't going to pan out, it seems to me that there was a shift in their strategy and that the interim government became an instrument to facilitate the plunder of Venezuela's assets and resources as part of this broader policy towards the country pursuing regime change, increasing the suffering, pressuring the Maduro government. We have the case of the gold that we were just talking about, but we also have the case of Monomeros and Sitco, which were similarly handed over to the opposition. Monomeros is in a really precarious situation. It was left in a really rough state. And Sitco, which is Venezuela's most prized foreign asset, is likely to be broken up and seized by U.S. courts in order to comply with some arbitration awards. But it seems most people in the U.S., in the U.K., they don't fully understand the impact of Western policy towards Venezuela. They don't understand the impact of sanctions, of seizing assets. What does this situation, this reality that people are unaware of, say about the mainstream media's coverage? What role have the media played in facilitating the plunder of Venezuela? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I suppose there's, there's two key studies. Um, that, that I've used to kind of uh, elaborate on the, on the ma- mainstream media's uh, awful coverage of, of the impact of sanctions on Venezuela. And the first was a CEPR, um, Centre for Economic Policy Research uh, study, which found that roughly 40,000 Venezuelans had, had, killed, had been killed as a direct consequence of the international sanctions regime against the country over the, over the span of just one year. And um, the former UN Special Rapporteur, uh, Alfred Bezayas, similarly estimated that roughly 100,000 Venezuelans had died as a direct result of the sanctions regime. Um, but particularly related to the CPR study, um, which was, you know, really in-depth, um, uh, really impressive study. Um, and, you know, CPR is a kind of a respected international um, re- research uh, agency. Uh, for, totally ignored. Uh, I don't, I don't think one mainstream media organisation picked up this study um, because, I mean, of course, the mainstream media is complicit in the sanctions regime against Venezuela. Every single time that the, the mainstream media reports on the internal economic and political situation in, in Venezuela and refers to the very real human suffering of Venezuelans and doesn't refer to the sanctions regime well, they're, they're guilty of a dereliction of, of duty as journalists to inform the public about what, what is contributing to the, 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 the difficult humanitarian situation in the country. Um, the other key study that was also totally ignored across the corporate media was that of the UN Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of unilateral coercive measures, i.e. sanctions, um, which bear, bear in mind are seen uh, as as a war crime. Unilateral coercive measures 
uh, that go beyond the remit of the United Nations and inter- international bodies like the abyss are seen as um, are seen as war crimes and they are seen as collective punishment against civilian populations. And that's that's worth bearing in mind in this discussion um, about how serious sanctions, uh, unilateral sanctions, really are. But the UN Special Rapporteur Alina Duhan, I believe, in February twenty twenty one. Um, found that the national income, Venezuela's national gross income, had declined by 99% uh, of, of what it was on pre-sanctions. So, so the national income is 1% of, of what it had pre-sanctions. And um, that is an incredible statistic. Um, and on top of that, Duhan urged the various banks, uh, particularly the various European banks, including the Bank of England, to release Venezuela's state assets so that it could adequately respond to the various humanitarian and, at the time, medical issues, uh, given the, the context of the COVID pandemic. Um, and this, this was ignored by the UK government, um, but it was also totally ignored by the entirety of the UK corporate media. And I wrote an article about this in um, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting Fair. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the role of of the UK media and that's and that's the role of um uh, and that's the impact of the sanctions as well. But I wanted to briefly talk about the money uh that as as you mentioned in the US, the money that was transferred from a city bank account uh, belonging to the Venezuelan state and transferred via the, the Federal Bureau of New York directly to the coffers of the parallel Juan Guaido government. And the the, the one Juan Guaido parallel uh, government, the interim government, whatever you want to call it, um, was given $342 million of Venezuelan state assets. And it used these state assets in order to um, basically topple the state and in order to seize more assets. So all of the, all of the Guaido's board uh, legal fees throughout this entire Bank of England case have been paid with money that was initially appropriated from the Venezuelan state in the US. Um, so this is kind of an incredible chain of looting. You know, the Guaido board has, has, has managed to loot money in the US uh, and is using that to loot more money in the UK. And, you know, if, if, if they had managed to get, get their hands on the gold in the UK, you can imagine that they would have used that money to loot even more Venezuelan state assets elsewhere. Um, so that's why that's why this case is is so really important, and um, because the UK government was prepared to transfer state assets to hostile actors engaged in regime change in that very same state, um, and the, the important so that's the importance for Venezuelans. The importance for Britons is that the Bank of England can no longer be seen by foreign states as a safe place to to to, to keep to keep gold reserves. Um, any foreign state that severs or has difficult diplomatic relations with the UK will think of this case and think, well, we need to remove our state assets from, from the UK, from London immediately, because there is a possibility that the UK government will arbitrarily recognise a, a, an opposition political figure and then attempt to transfer the state's assets to that figure which would allow them to engage more strongly in regime change. Um, so, so that's that's the kind of political impact for for Britain. Um, so it's so it's both Venezuelans are definitely, you know, the the, the chief victims of, of of this ridiculous British policy.
but there's there's also a blowback effect for people in Britain. Yeah, it's a terrible precedent, no matter which way you look at it. I want to thank you so much for helping shine some light on this issue. I think it's something that has frankly been covered very poorly, but has so many implications. I really appreciate your analysis on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And um, yes, support Venezuela analysis as well. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored today, check out our dispatch on efforts to bury the Monroe Doctrine, episode 13 on solidarity versus sanctions, and episode one on the deadly impact of U.S. sanctions. Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We'll end today's episode with the song Mi Patria Soberana by Armando Martinez. de mi patria soberana es en Caicara donde se baila el joroso Puerto Ayacucho es hermoso usted lo sabe compay la brisa de Puerto Páez peinan a las colombianas lo dice Marcelo Quinto porque tenía ciento y pico y todas son complacientes Caputé siempre el centro de Venezuela la geografía no se vela y tengo mi llanerita es testigo Santa Rita de lo tanto que la amo y en las del llano, ahí cantaré un mano a mano con mi compadre Ángel Ávila. Hoy le dedico mi canta al doctor José María.